This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ZCNYC. Thanks for listening. Good morning. This isn't how I planned to start this talk, but it's just what I'm experiencing. Um, I want to uh, express my gratitude to the Sangha um, uh, for you being here today, for this past week, uh, for those uh, who did the extraordinary amount of work and dedicated themselves, the two monastics, Rakasan and Yukon, who uh, imitated Michelangelo and painting ceilings and, um, for the whole week. And we are not young men anymore. <laughs> um, to the many people who brought supplies, sometimes purchased via their own donation, and brought them here, and came and donated their, the dana of the work, um, and just contributed. And that takes place on so many levels, so the levels of ideas and design of... Um, urging me to not be so frugally zen cheap, <laughs> um, which is in me because I grew up with Zen Mountain Monastery having nothing uh, and, um, and, um, and also the monastic perspective, which is in me, um, of, of that. And yet recognizing that there's... Um, quality added from many different perspectives. So uh, thank you for that and for many other things. Um, and some of the people are not here and can't be here, but thank you. So this is case number 43 in the Mumonkan. Shoes on and a staff. Master shoes on held up his staff, showing it to the assembled disciples and said, if you call this a stick, you are committed to the name. If you do not call it a stick, you deny it. Tell me, what will you call it? Mumun's comment, if you call this a stick, you are committed to the name. If you do not call it a stick, you deny it. You cannot say anything. You cannot say nothing. Quick, speak, speak. Muman's poem. Holding up the stick to mandate the killing or giving of life. If you are entangled in opposing and denying, the Buddhas and ancestors will beg for their lives. So this is a very precise koan, very clear in its wording, very stripped down. But what's it about? Where do you stick in your life? 
Where are the places that we, within our own settled perspectives, are binding us right now? Think about this for a bit. Take a moment now and just put yourself in the place of places. Almost automatically, we tend to see the problem from the perspective that it is out there. The problem is out there. That's where the stickiness is. You can usually tell because along with that, those thought processes comes the thought, if only, you know, if only it was this and not that. Even when we see the problem as our judgments and perspectives, there can be a tendency, there usually is a tendency, to understand this as different from my sense of myself. We, we may dismiss it with an acknowledgement that we, we might be part of the problem. It's possible that we might be part of the problem. Could be. Maybe it is. But, you know, not really is the unspoken context, you know. Yeah, okay. All right, I'll give you 5%. You, it, whatever, is the problem. We're involved, of course, but it's separate and apart from our being, our self. How would the problem feel, look, if we and the thing we are labeling a problem were a singularity, where there was no space between us and that problem? No space. Now, it's unimaginable. We can't imagine this. And it's interesting why we can't imagine this. And, you know, we, we test this out in, in Zen. When you work on the koan. it becomes very real. What would happen to the sense of a problem as something that is not us if the problem was a singularity? You understand what I mean by singularity? Not different than us. The wholeness of that. I'm not saying the oneness of that. I'm saying the wholeness of that. Would there even be a problem remaining? And that's an interesting question. Usually, already in contemplating the challenges and the problems of our life, we're stuck in duality. We're stuck in two. The thing that is apart from ourself, the problem at hand, and from our own pain at this problem. Our tendency is to be at a distance from things. To see them through the, the filter of a position. This is my position. This is where I am. This is who I am. This is how I am. This is the circumstances of my life. And anything that might challenge that, you know, I take personally. I'm going to protect against that possibility. After all, it seems safer this way. And yet, from that perspective, something is unseen and often lost. And what is that? What it is, is that the distance from ourself and the problem can be the entry point to the seemingly unsolvable issues of our life. 
we're defining them as insolvable. We're defining them as outside ourselves. And we continue, can continue to bang our heads against the wall of insolvability. Or we can approach it. We can shift. We can approach it from, a, from not that same perspective of a fixed position. Instead of thinking about the problem, analyzing it, taking it apart to figure it out, to bring us to a solution. We can just start where we are. Start where we are. It's funny how this simple practice advice seems so elusive. You know, we demand so much of ourselves that comes out of fantasy, fear, uh, fixing, um, avoidance. But there's another option. Just be where you are with it. What would it mean to accept the circumstances before you? Which is not just in terms of a problem, but I mean every second the circumstances are before us. What would it mean to truly accept what is before us just as it is? Just as it is. There's a lot in that or very little in that same thing. There are a couple of very basic perspectives of reality understanding. That's my term, reality understanding, seeing into reality. And so here are questions that can sometimes be helpful. And these are not necessarily Buddhist questions. I mean, these are widely applicable. Do you need a chair? Would that be helpful? So there we go with acceptance. So they're, they're the fundamental questions of problem solving. In any problem, this is applicable. So it's not particularly Buddhist. So the first is the question, where is the problem? Where is it? That's a fundamental question. Where actually is the problem? Don't move too quick on that. What is the problem? And who has the problem? These are very powerful questions. They are system-destroying questions. You all know that you can't solve fundamental system problems. That every system, because it's not reality, it's a system that purports to explain things in reality. So our life is full of these systems, right? The closer you look, the more you see of them. But an obvious one is Newtonian, Newtonian physics. You, you can't solve problems that Newtonian physics can't address from the platform of Newtonian physics. So acknowledging that, because it wasn't acknowledged for a long, long, long time until Mr. Einstein came along leads to quantum physics. Different platform. Still a platform, different platform. So threatening to Einstein that he wouldn't accept what his own conclusions had led him to, to some degree. I can't believe that God plays dice with reality. I'm misquoting it, but something close to that.
So it's challenging, you know, if the greatest genius of our times, you know, won't accept reality, where does that leave us? It leaves us willing to see something that maybe others don't see to address suffering. And believe me, I'm not putting down Einstein. So where is the problem? So what did the Buddha say about where the problem is? He said, the problem is you. You personally? Well, yeah, actually, you personally. You know, life is suffering, contains suffering, tends towards suffering, is a good way to put it. That whatever our projects are, they tend towards suffering, because we're, well, going to that. And the cause of it is endless desire. Well, who's the one with endless desire? Another way to frame that is the cause of it is our sense of self, separate self, which is a desire machine, right? A dissatisfaction machine. See, see the first noble truth. So my own experience, to the extent that I'm able to acknowledge my own blindness, is that the answer to these questions... What is the problem? Where is the problem? Who has the problem? Is me. Not from the usual system level that we're dealing with, right? We live in a world which projects problems onto everybody and everything else. And everyone in this room knows that. Or denies that there isn't even a problem. We're good at that too. So what do we say? The absolute light... Luminous throughout the whole universe. This is our true body and mind, this absolute light. Luminous throughout the whole universe. Do you feel that? Do you see that? Do you practice that? This is the light of Zazen. When we sit and look at our own mind and let it like turn to dust in a way and you know, drop out of the bottom. And if you're here for the first time, you may say, what the hell is he talking about? You know, I'm looking at my own mind and all I see is endless thoughts. And more, more shit where that shit came from. But, you know, you're not going to sit down at the piano and play Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto on the first try. It's a practice. We start where we are. That's the saving grace of it. We start where we are and that works. Why does that work? It works because everything is there from the beginning. Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto, my favorite piano piece, is the in you. Equivalent to you. So the absolute light, luminous throughout the whole universe, is your own body and mind. It is your own body and mind. This is not theoretical. This is not a teaching. This is reality. And how far are we from that in our own perspective of living life? What's the gap between our own experience of ourself and others, our own understanding of ourself and others, and this absolute light? Luminous throughout the whole universe. Nothing is left out. Nothing, including our own foolishness. Does this affect your understanding of how your conditioned problems come into existence? Does this influence it? Is there any connection between 
what, what this is not is a teaching, but a realization. This is move. This is a realization. And your own perspective. I think we tend to be very object-oriented. We're trained, we're well-trained to be object-oriented, to see and experience ourselves and all other selves, all things, all beings, everything we encounter as things. And where are those things? Out there. You're out there, you're out there, you're out there, you're out there. I'm in here, thank you very much. And how does this occur? Is this objectifying grounded in reality as it is? Well, how is reality as it is? What is that? Well, how the hell are you going to know that when your mind is moving? The reality you're encountering is your moving thoughts. The reality you're encountering is the endless conditioned responses that are automatic, mostly unseen, and even when they're seen, intellectualized, and karmically connected with who you are and the life that you have to now, and your parents' life, and our westernized civilization, and on and on and on, from every direction. Far beyond anything we can know and appreciate in a, in a no-knowing sense. And that's what the Buddha said, our karma is ultimately not fully knowable. Sometimes it's stupidly obvious. You do that, and you get smacked in the head by the rake that you just stepped on, and oh, yeah, but mostly not. So how do we be free? You know, you call it this, you're stuck that way. If you don't call it, you're stuck that way. Well, we start with Zazen. We start and we end and we continue with Zazen because it's, we're studying that mind. We're studying the unreality. Because it's unreal, it will reveal itself as reality. But it's, it is a commitment. It's not, it's not a free ride. It's not a get-out-of-jail pass, go directly to go, collect $200. We're way too embalmed in ourself to, for that to happen so simply. So we study ourselves, And that study, slowly, immeasurably, we don't know how this process happens. We can't stand outside it and measure it and calibrate it and recalibrate it and figure it out. we let go of ourself. Meaning we're realizing that there's actually no self to let go of. Although here I am and here you are. But what is that self? That's what we're studying when we sit Zazen. So we say to study the self is to forget the self. But do we understand that we can't forget ourself? We're not capable of forgetting ourself by definition. There's me There's the forgetting of the self. That's a duality. Yet it occurs when we forget to objectify ourselves. That's a way of saying we're forgetting ourselves. How did that happen? No idea. And the interesting thing about this, the wonder of this, is that we're always realized within our specific persona, within our specific humanity, within all the descriptive words we have about ourselves about ourself, we're realized within that self, as that self. And that's wonderful. Shuzan, the, uh, the protagonist within this koan, not a lot is known about him, but some things. So this is his death poem. 
a golden body in a silver world. Sentient and non-sentient are of one truth. At the extremity of light and dark, practice is transcended. The sun reveals its true body in the afternoon. A golden body in a silver world. Sentient and insentient are of one truth. This is the golden body. It is the sun shining with golden light. The absolute light luminous throughout the whole world. It is your body. And with this body, with this staff, sentient and non-sentient are of one truth. This is Zen practice. The realization of what Shuzan is offering us. He couldn't be any clearer. The golden body is your realization. It is the absolute life. In this civil world, in this world of things and beings, of objects, of judgments, of suffering, of joy, of compassion, So he says, sentient and non-sentient are one truth. We say this many different ways. We chanted relative and absolute this morning. The absolute is the golden body, the sun. The relative is you and me and our foolishness. At the extremity of light and death, practice is transcended. There's no practice in realization. Practice from this perspective, is a duality. But it's the only duality we have. It's a treasure. It's our only entry point that will save us from suffering. So we pick it up and use it. That's the compassion of practice. There's no problem. Dualities are not a problem. Attachments to dualities are the problem. So Shuzan holds up a stick and says, if you call this a stick, you are committed to the name. When you commit to a name, you actually oppose to what it truly is. You see that? When you call this a stick, you're opposing its true reality. You commit to a small, dark perspective bound by duality. I'm here, see the, see the stick, that's over there. Hi, Stick. Hi, Hogan. How are we doing? I'm okay. Or I'm not okay. A small, dark perspective. A very tiny perspective. Your name, for example. Any descriptive feature of you. So I like to list them. Man, woman, black, white, tall, short, handsome, ugly, Transgender, gay, homo, masculine, feminine, conservative, progressive. We can go on for hours, right? Very small, dark perspectives. All these adjective nouns disguised as, in our mind, as objective descriptions of, of dis- objective descriptions of reality are a denial of their true reality. And it's actually, when, when's it the easiest to see? You turn on the TV, you know, and you see the political commentary, and, and you see the phoniness that 
is obvious. They're positioned, which is not limited to any side. And again, it's not the words and ideas. We need to be able to use our words and ideas. But we need to be able to use them in a way that helps, that offers true love, true compassion. Selflessness in the name of self, rather than the words about selflessness. You know, attachment, you know, I looked up the, the etymology, I think that's the right word, of attachment, just out of curiosity. Uh, and it's, again, one of these words in practice, we kind of, because we know what it means, we kind of skip over and therefore miss our attachment. And it's, I think it's French from the 1400s or whatever, um, but it means to apprehend, to put in jail. Something close to that. Isn't that interesting? Put in jail. And because we don't experience reality as it is, we look outside ourselves. We look outside ourselves for good reason, for, to, because we want wholeness. We want to be whole. And we want to be able to love and be loved. And what we get is a false sense of wholeness by claiming something is it. My viewpoint. Not your viewpoint, my viewpoint. My judgment, my assessment. And... I think often, most of the time, if not all the time, we don't see this process very clearly. It's so automatic, and we get caught in our thoughts about reality and our thoughts about ourself, ultimately, rather than the reality itself. And even when we're aware of this, we're still trapped by the habit of it. It's not enough to be aware of it. Zen practice is wonderful from this perspective. It does address suffering. But it does not take away our responsibility for when we project our attached intellectual understanding of Zen or of a self or of anything into this very real world. Real world of things and beings and suffering and ideas and politics. And we are creating the reality that we experience with our mind. And it's not a true reality. It has elements of it which you can look at and pick out and say there's truth in that. But the wholeness of it is false. And we all do it. In case 40 in the Blue Cliff record, Officer Li Jing, when talking to Nansen, or Nanquen, great master, said... Teacher Master Zhao said, heaven and earth and I are of the same root. All things and I are of one substance. Isn't that absolutely fantastic? And Nanquan pointed to a flower in the garden and said to him, people these days see this flower as though they are in a dream. He was not being complimentary. Understanding that all things and I are of one substance can be very helpful, a a helpful perspective. It can be a shifting perspective, but it's not enough. 
It's not yet a golden body in a silver world. The realization that your golden body shines everywhere, which instantly shines with the light of compassion. It has to. It's the same thing. So it's not enough to describe it. It's not enough to come into the teaching room and say, I understand and offer some equivalent that heaven, earth, and I are of the same root. All things and I are of one substance. Isn't that great? Well, sure, it's great. What would be much greater is your own realization of that as the actuality. And, you know, you can read all, you know, these Buddhist magazines are terrific, and there's real teachings in them. Um, but they're also a bit misleading, as all teachings are. Because it needs to be yours. So we seek outside ourselves, as Officer Li Jeng does. Because of our sense of lack and not knowing our true face. And that outside confirmation are in some subtle or obvious way thoughts about things. They're not the thing itself. Thoughts about Mu. Thoughts about Shikantaza. Thoughts about this breath. They're not the breath. They're not Mu. They're thoughts about Mu. Yet, if you do not call it a stick, you deny it. It is, after all, a stick. But what is a stick? What is that? What is this? How do we refrain from relying on our words and ideas? How do we actually do that? How do we let go of our reliance of thoughts and languages of finality? Useful, essential, but a finality? No description and no thought is a finality. It's just something that comes into our head from our life and our conditions and goes away. If I call you by your name, am I truly seeing you? Am I naming you? Or am I not naming you? If I do not call you by your name, how do we communicate? It reminds me of how sometimes Zen practitioners get caught in, you know, I'm not going to use personal pronouns. So you, you get the sentence where, um, I went to the airport. Nope, nope. The airport was accessed by me. Nope, nope, that's not it. You know, they're trying to figure out how to leave me out of the equation. You know, there's a very famous uh, haiku that really struck me in my younger days of Zen practice, and I'm not going to remember the whole thing, but I think it's by Basso, the, if I have his name right, the famous haiku master, Japanese haiku master. And he, he lays out a beautiful haiku, and then he says something about a shadow, and he says, oh, I'm in the picture. And I, you know, I thought, oh, he is in the picture. He is in the haiku. You're not supposed to do that. Look at the reality of it. You are in the picture. Your thoughts and ideas are in the picture and have value and in substance and represent something that is, needs to be seen and honored. Represent your life force. Represent you. 
but who is this you? So we're not leaving ourselves out of this in any way. Our thoughts and ideas. But it's not final. So we can call this a stick, or we can call it success, or money, or sexual satisfaction, or endless life, or enlightenment, or you know, fill in the blanks that are applied to you. But there's no finality there. There's no safety in that. Woman's comment. If you call this a stick, you are committed to the name. If you do not call it a stick, you deny it. You cannot say anything. And you cannot say nothing. Quick. Speak. Speak. And here you have Zen. Kadagiri Roshi wrote a book, a contemporary but relatively recently deceased Zen master, called You Have to Say Something. You can't just sit there. You have to live your life. You have to come forth from your Zazen. So how do you live with, within thoughts, within ideas, within words, but free of thoughts and ideas? How do you do that? That's what this question is asking. And it's not asking, in a, you know, oh, take your time, come back to me in 10 or 20 years and let me hear what you have to say. It may take that, but it's, it's, you know, quick, speak, speak. Why, why is that in there? What is that offering? You know, stop thinking about it. Say something. Trust what is you to say something. And the mind moves and you go, but I don't know what to say. I don't know. I, I get online and I have to go in and see one of the teachers and I have no idea what to say. Say that. Honor yourself. Honor yourself. Trust that. So this speak, speak is a question that does not lodge in yet another place. We speak of non-dual wisdom, of compassion, of reality as it is, as our home, as our ground. And when we trust that, something emerges that transcends polished speech. You know, it's interesting, and please forgive me, Joshin. Uh, you know, she stepped into the position of making announcements. And it's transformative. It's transformative. And this is the training. So that, that's another one of my sayings. It's the training, stupid. How does transformation take place? It's the training, stupid. I'm not calling anybody stupid. I'm saying what's obvious. You, you, you train. And we only offer that to students because there has to be a certain permission to... To, I mean, we offer it to everybody on some level, but the formal training positions you know, are appropriate to where the student is so that there is permission on the part of the person being trained so it doesn't seem abusive, and, and also the opportunity in the per- person is in that place where it actually helps them. It's not just failure. So a person gets up and speaks the first time, and they go, forgive me, I dropped my notes, and da-da-da-da-da. And then they do it the second time, and they speak, a little more confidently, and you know, I realize I, I can screw up and it's okay, and they do it the third time, and you come back a year later and it's, holy shit, you know, who is this person? 
you know, where did that transformation happen? And if you think that transformation is just in what they're saying, it's not. Something far beyond that is happening. So that's Zen training. It's very different than Zen practice. So Ango is coming. Ango, for those who are new, is a three-month intensified period of practice. Someone is asked to the most, the way we phrase it often, is the most senior of the junior students uh, is asked to step forward into a position of leadership for the three months. And is real. And they sit at the front of the zendo, and they give encouragement during zazen, during, especially during sessions, and do many other things. They work closely with their teacher. And at the end of that, in the last session of that three months, they're asked to lead Dharma Encounter. Now, many of you have not encountered Dharma Encounter, but I'm speaking of it because it's quick. Speak, speak. The teacher is in the front, or in this case, the shuso, the head, head, the person who's been asked to lead the ango, and people ask questions, Dharma questions. And, um, you know, it's their first shot at it. They've never done anything like this. And believe me, it's unique. And it is. Quick, speak, speak. You have to say something. So you have to trust something, and that's something you've never done before. And don't completely trust, and there you are, and you have to say something. This is incredible training. It scares the shit out of everybody. I mean, who does it? And they get up there in the course of this ceremony, before just before the Dharma encounter, which traditionally is called Dharma combat, to give you the masculine traditional sense of it. This is what they say. They hold up a three-foot-long stick, and actually some translations of this koan talk about that as instead of this, which is a cuts uh, a teaching implement. So this is what they say. This is a three-foot-long brown snake. So already, what happened to the stick? A long time ago, it was a kampura flower on Mount Gudakutra. And at Mount Shuren, it became a plum blossom. What the hell's going on here? Is this a stick? You just said it's a three-foot-long brown snake. Is it a snake? Is it a kampura flower? Is it a plum blossom? What is it? Sometimes, a tr- I'm going to answer the question. Sometimes it transforms into a dragon and swallows the heavens and earth. Sometimes it transforms... I have dragon here. I was doing this from memory. Uh, into a dragon with the power to kill and give life. Sometimes it transforms into a sword. Another non-masculine image. Um, with the power to kill and give life. Right now, in accord with the order of my teacher, it lies in my hands, and the person is holding it like this. Now all you dragons and elephants in the Dharma Hall, dragons and elephants, enlightened beings, you, confront me in Dharma encounter. Kaiko, you go first. Kaiko's the attendant. It's got to be real. The training has to be real. The insight comes out of the training. The insight comes out of you, your desire to awaken, your desire to address suffering, your desire to whatever the energy of your life is that propels you 
to come to the craziness of a place like this and sit in silence and see what actually is happening in our own mind, which never happens normally outside this, although there are plenty of uh, hints at it in poetry and in, um, people looking and searching outside the normal suffering of our created culture. Muman's poem. Holding up the stick to mandate the killing or giving of life. If you are entangled in opposing and denying the Buddhas and ancestors, we'll beg for their lives. Does this koan have relevance for your life? Zen practice opens the door to the depths of who we are. And it does it in a way that we could never imagine from the outside. And even entering the practice, it's a constant surprise at how profoundly deep we are. And understand, each person has their own journey. And it takes, for some, a long time before the mind begins to palpably settle a bit. And the thoughts, before we can let go a bit, so the thoughts begin to settle. And each person's karma is different. And each person has to honor that journey as their own. You know, we're crazy until we're less crazy. That's one way to describe Zen practice. It's my experience, at least. Not stating I'm free of my craziness, but can happen. So in the beginning, to sit Zen is to work with the Dharma, with your own study, with the Sangha, which invisibly yet completely, crucially, supports us in our practice with the teachers and with the challenges of opening up to our own suffering and the suffering we've created by our blind attachments, which each of us have, with our never-ending fears that continue to appear before us. Why should we go there? Why should you do this? That's a very personal question to you. No one else has the right to answer that. I mean, but realistically, how much easier would it be to sit in our comfortable or even uncomfortable lives and be small? I mean, that's easy. We got that part down, right? And yet, Dogen said, though there are many features in this dusty world, dusty world of suffering, And the world beyond conditions, you can only see and understand what your eye of practice can reach. That's it. You can only see and understand what you personally realize for yourself. That's it. Everything else is fantasy. So how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Ango's coming. The mountains and rivers order is in the midst of an extremely challenging, crucial, and precious shift, exploration, investigation, which involves racial boundaries, gender boundaries, all boundaries. So I want to quote Angel Kyoto Williams, a very respected Zen teacher. And there are many Buddhist teachers involved in this work, but I'm purposely quoting a Zen teacher of insight. And I'm also quoting her a little out of context, so please respect that. It's appropriate context 
to, to bring it here. And I'm exploring how is this relevant to our life. And she says, one of the tenets of whiteness, and looking in this room, that's by far the predominant feature of this room, is to hold in confidence what is true. Confidence. There is politeness, and there is keeping things in confidence. And this is how perfectly decent human beings can abide with, by death, genocide, the selling of bodies, killing people with impunity. And in this, something gets stolen from every single one of you. The heart has been lost. No one has escaped. On the surface, you get to do all kinds of things. But in the truth of your personal dignity, you have absolutely no choice at all but to abide in this location and uphold it and be complicit in it for fear that to disrupt it will destroy who you are. I hope you can hear these words. Because we all abide in our own location and we all are fearfully protective of this location. I keep thinking back to the southern the days of slavery in the South, where I know historically there were some very good-hearted people who managed plantations and owned slaves, which would seem to be impossible from a certain perspective. How could we possibly do that? Good-hearted people, kind people. But we are doing the same thing. And I'm not just speaking to POWs, people of whiteness. I'm speaking to all of us. It's a perfect term, POWs. All of us are bound. All of us are complicit for the fear that not to be complicit will disrupt and destroy who you are. This is Zen practice. It may not be your view. It may not represent your view in our complicity, but it is. She goes on to say, it's this innocence, in quotes, this abiding in the fog of not seeing and not wanting to see, and the personal and social and cultural and spiritual maneuvers required daily to maintain this this polite blindness for whole swaths of the population. It's that that I find most dumbfounding about the nationality, national, national, nationalism and racism and misogyny on display everywhere. On display in me. On display in you. Crimes committed and encouraged gleefully, followed by a constriction of e- earnest ignorance. I'm honestly at a loss of how to respond to it. She's dumbfounded by it. As a person of color and an enlightened person of color, she's dumbfounded by its obviousness that we may not see, that we may not be apparent to us. And if if that hat doesn't fit your head, look a little further, because as I said, this is not bound by racism or genderism. It reaches everywhere that conditioning can reach. 
that suffering can reach. What did the man say? Life is suffering. It's caused by ourself. No one else is doing it. So as Moomin points out in his poem, if you are entangled in opposing and denying, the Buddhas and ancestors will beg for their lives. As Angel Williams says, I'm honestly at a loss how to respond to this. And so she says, in a slightly different place, take sides. Is this a stick or not a stick? But also take care. I don't think taking sides suggests that we negate the humanity of everyone else's position. I don't think that taking sides suggests that we negate the humanity of everyone else's position. In fact, that is guaranteed to create more suffering if we do that. We take sides, and we understand that we must take care of the whole. We take sides in a way that does not take sides. We take sides in a way that doesn't separate. It distinguishes and it discerns, but it doesn't negate or erase. Much of the time, it's either me or you. Even take sides sounds, from a Western perspective, like I'm seeing only one side. It's hard for us to see the wholeness or non-binary nature of taking sides in which it's actually a wholeness, not a separation. But you have to speak. You have to say something. If you call this a stick, you deny its reality. And if you don't call it a stick, you're lost. What will you do? Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.